The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Spotify for podcasters. Hi, friends. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. Spotify for podcasters is now available for use by anyone out there who's interested in producing, monetizing, and distributing their podcast. You can have access to some of the best tools in the industry using Spotify for podcasters. Go to podcasters.spotify.com for more details.
to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss Theosophy and the New Psychology. Well, this here is actually a series of lectures that was given by Annie Besant, and this was recorded in 1904. And this has to do with the Theosophical Society and their involvement with modern psychology and also the lens through which they observe the psychology of human nature and through which they've applied these many things with their influence into society at large here. Remember, psychology in and of itself is a relatively new science in its modern form. Of course, human psychology has been studied from time immemorial, from going back to the days before written history. So we can say that uh, many within the secret society groups have been studying human behavior for a long time and have noticed many things and recorded many aspects to it and perhaps have some different insights into the behaviors of mankind than what is presented in our mainstream science today. So that being said, we're going to get right into the reading here because there's a lot of ground to cover. And I do find it rather intriguing that those within these occult fraternities have interwoven their ideals through our modern psychological sciences. But in fact, they certainly have. They've had a profound influence on our modern science of psychology. Many of the ideas that are inherent in our modern psychology are adopted wholesale from these occult fraternities and the secret society groups, the mystery schools of antiquity, if you will. They've known some things for a long, long time, and they've found ways to apply them, and they've given a scientific bent to it. They've restructured the way they talk about it in a type of language that is tailor-made for our modern sensibilities. And this was all done during this time period, and much of it was done through the interference, or I shouldn't say interference, through the cooperation of the secret society groups. Go back and look at guys like B.F. Skinner. Go back and look at guys like Carl Jung. Many of them have notable attachments to secret society groups, or the occult sciences, as it were. So... Many of the founding fathers of our modern psychology were believers in these ideas that are presented within these groups. So let's get right into it here. Theosophy and the new psychology. The larger consciousness. Psychology has traveled far during the last 40 years. going to pause for a second there just to point out this was recorded in 1904, so she's talking going back to 1864. That is when the 
bulk of our modern psychology came into existence at that point and was built upon. So from that time forward is when we largely got this science of psychology wherein they attempted to separate the human psyche, the idea of the human psyche, from the physiological mechanisms of the brain. And we see many of the effects of that way of thinking. So they were separating out philosophy, largely, from much of the thinking here, trying to shift it into a more materialist paradigm view. So let's continue on, having stated that already. So she says, Some 40 years ago, it was accepted on almost all sides of the scientific world that, in order to follow safely psychological studies, you must base your psychology on physiology. Now, there is a truth in that, which I do not want to overlook, that you cannot deal accurately and fully with consciousness without knowing something of the nature of its instruments. But the sense in which that famous sentence was uttered was false. If it meant that psychology grew out of physiology, that mind grew out of matter, that consciousness was the result of the mechanical arrangement of matter, and that, therefore, in tracing the workings of the mind, we must start with a thorough understanding of the brain and nervous system. Far have we gone since that day, and what I have called the new psychology is the psychology that holds its mind open to all new facts and truths, that is not content to march along a beaten track. This, or that, is willing to consider facts the most abnormal, provided only that they are demonstrated to the reason, understanding that in psychology, as elsewhere, the fact which seems to be the most abnormal, which seems to fly in the face of knowledge already acquired, is the fact that it is most likely to be of value, that is most likely to act as a signpost along the hitherto undiscovered road. That, of course, is admitted in most scientific investigations, but somehow people seem to have shrunk from it in the science of the mind, where, if anywhere, abnormal effects are likely to be the most significant. But the new psychology walks with its eyes open. It does not reject methods because they are new, nor facts because they are unknown. Granted, it is a little inclined to rebaptize the facts, that sometimes along the lines of the new psychology, this tendency shows itself somewhat prominently, as will be seen in one of the cases to which I shall allude in a moment, where an ancient and well-known fact has just been admitted into scientific society under a new baptismal name. For the moment, however, let me give my reason for coupling theosophy and the new psychology. And I'm going to pause for a minute before we continue, folks. So Miss Besant here recognized that much of that era, the building of the foundation of psychology, was based upon physiology. Now in, she's claiming and recognizing... <coughs> excuse me, that this cannot be the sole basis of consciousness. Physiological processes. So she recognized something there. And in so doing, they set forth to transform this psychology that was developing into a new psychology, taking into consideration things about consciousness that just cannot possibly be quantified in some way in the physiological basis. 
And although she acknowledges there is some physiological basis as to the normal operation of the process of thinking and of how the mind operates, there's something that goes beyond that. And many of the philosophers of old and the theosophists and many of the secret society groups, the mystery schools, many people throughout the course of time have understood this. And now is where the rubber meets the road with it. So many of these people had influence. Many of these things came about not by accident, as may be presented here, the ideas of physiological functions being the core of what we would call consciousness. This was brought into perpetuity, as she had stated, about 40 years before this. Sometime in the 1860s, the mid-1800s, is when psychology really became transformed, thinking away from the old ways of thinking about mind and how it was separate from physiology. And they were merged together. And she's pointing this out, but she's also inculcating the idea of a new psychology wherein they are going to combine these two things, the materialist view, along with the theosophical view of these things. So... Here's the thing. I think there's some good points to be made in here. And there's also some things that may have been misunderstood. And I always caution you, take this stuff with a grain of salt. They have, oftentimes, things of value written into their works here. And sometimes they miss the mark completely. And only time tells that out. And we'll see as we get through this if what Miss Besant is saying here has had any effect on our modern era. And I think it most certainly has. So beginning in the early 1900s, around the turn of the century between the 1800s and 1900s, the theosophists and the various secret schools decided that they would try to engraft themselves into psychology and engraft the ideas of the mystery schools into psychology. And thus we get guys like B.F. Skinner, guys like Carl Jung, guys like Sigmund Freud, all of them had some of these ideals from the mystery schools inculcated in their work, and they combined it with the study of physiology. And as we'll see, they use the physiological frame of reference as a mechanism for quantifying something that is not quantifiable, and this is why they do so so that it can be quantified, and if it could be quantified, it could be controlled to some degree or another. So we see this, and this was also the same timing of the rise of the major pharmaceutical industry, the transformation of medicine from homeopathic methodologies and various other methodologies strictly to the allopathic way of thinking. So in this time frame, from the mid-1800s on up through the early 1900s, is when a huge transformation took place across all of society in the quote-unquote sciences. And all of these things were steered in certain directions by those in the occult fraternities. But let's read on now, because she says these are her reasons now for coupling theosophy and the new psychology. Theosophy, having a theory of life and of consciousness based on a very wide and very ancient investigation of nature, is able to offer to the new psychology a theory of which it stands somewhat sadly in need. 
I say a theory because it can only be accepted as a theory, as a hypothesis, so far as the scientific world is for the moment concerned. If there is presented to that world a theory in which the facts acknowledged as true all find their places, if the theory offers a rational explanation for facts otherwise inexplicable, if it offers a rational solution for problems that otherwise remain unsolved, then it may surely be accepted as dealing with the facts and held for the time until some better explanation and solution are forthcoming. Now, the new psychology is terribly in need of a theory under which its facts can be arranged. For you must remember that the stage of hypothesis is a recognized stage in all scientific investigations. After many facts have been collected and to some extent coordinated, a generalization arises out of the coordinated facts, and our scientific teachers put forward a hypothesis based on the facts which suggest the generalization. They then make that hypothesis the basis for further experiment, finding experiment more likely to be fruitful when it starts along lines definitely determined. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Miss Besant is clearly describing scientific method, something that's lost on most scientists today. <laughs> but I digress. Let's continue reading. If the new experiments do not strengthen and confirm the hypothesis, it is thrown aside. But if it is confirmed by them, the hypothesis gradually passes into the realm of the definite and acknowledged teachings of science. I am only claiming the position of a reasonable hypothesis for that which theosophy lays down with regard to the facts accumulated by the new psychology, but I do not mean that I hold it as a hypothesis myself. To pretend that would be to deceive you. I hold it as knowledge, not as hypothesis, but I present it to you as a hypothesis for you to re-examine and accept or reject. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now Miss Besant is speaking with authority when she says this is something that she knows. This is knowledge, in her view, occult knowledge. This is how it's accepted within the fraternities. This is a known commodity to the secret schools. But she's presenting it here as a hypothesis to appease those within the general confines of the scientific community here. So let's read on and see what else she has to say here. Now that there is a larger consciousness in man is a fa fact which is being asserted by so many, which is supported by evidence so wide and multifarious, that one is almost inclined to say that the fact is beyond dispute. Some will think this is going too far, yet I doubt if you will find many amongst those who look into the experiments, who carefully weigh the testimony, who are not prepared to say that, well, they cannot perhaps explain and hesitate to assert, Yet they cannot but admit that the evidence for a consciousness wider than the ordinary brain consciousness is touching on the overwhelming. Sir Oliver Lodge has put forward his belief in very clear terms. He regards it as definitely established that our consciousness is much larger than the consciousness which manifests through the brain, that outside and beyond what we know normally as consciousness there exists a great tract to which no name save the name of consciousness can rationally be given, 
part of ourselves, perhaps the most important part of ourselves, inasmuch as there come whirling down from that unknown field of consciousness statements so clear and definite, commands so imperious and compelling, that they overbear the reason and mold conduct even against the logic of the human mind. That there is such a larger field of consciousness, he definitely asserts. Of its existence, he is definitely convinced, or if we take such statements as those in the book of the late Mr. Myers on human personality, you are confronted there with an accumulation of facts and evidence which it is impossible lightly to put on one side. Two things especially strike us in looking at that remarkable work. One, that the name given by Mr. Myers to this consciousness is awkward, unsuitable. One wishes sometimes that he had used a clearer name, asserting his belief in a consciousness definitely higher than the brain consciousness. And yet in reading Mr. Myers' book, I cannot believe his abstinence from such a statement was due to any mental cowardice on his part. For when I remember that he asserted the probability of the truth of obsession, of the taking possession of the body by an alien and often hostile intelligence, and when he added that this brought us back to the belief of the savage, so brave a statement seems to me to put entirely out of court the notion that he shrank from the assertion of the spirit in man from any kind of mental fear some reason he had for not speaking more definitely. Personally, it seems to me, due to mental confusion, that is, that he had a mass of facts he could not arrange, could not understand, could not explain. He could mark them off as dreams, as genius, as phantasms, and so on, but he had no theory which made them fall into a coherent and sequential view of human consciousness. Over and over again, in reading the book, I found myself saying, Oh, if Mr. Myers had only taken the opportunity he once had and had become a theosophist. You will say, yes, because you yourself are a theosophist. Perhaps so. Nonetheless, I find that when one reads that book in the light of theosophy, one can answer every question that he could not answer and show the explanation of facts which left him absolutely bewildered. This confusion falls into order when the theosophical theory is accepted, even if only temporarily, as a hypothesis, and if he had arranged his facts into an order based upon that, he would not have confounded the madman and the genius, the lumber room and the source of human inspiration. That is one of the points I hope to deal with in the forthcoming lectures. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Miss Besant gave six lectures in all on this. And what she's claiming here is things that the psychologists can't explain in physiological terms, the theosophists absolutely know and can explain based upon the spiritual things they know, based upon this secret knowledge they have. That's the implication being made here. And perhaps there is something to many of these older occult sciences. And that's the whole point here. I mean, there is value to be found in some of these older books. That's why I do this. I think there's an air of truth to a lot of what's presented, but it's also tinctured with just a little bit of poison, oftentimes. And that sometimes skews the mind, or skews the intention behind things. Overall, I think most people that get involved with these secret societies and such really truly believe they're getting involved with something good, and they're doing good things. 
and perhaps to some extent they are doing good things, but there's also some of this that has poisoned the well for so many others. And that's why it's important to read through this stuff and try to navigate through, separate the good bits from the bad bits and make the, your discernment call on those things and understand what it is that the people in positions of power in this world believe because the things they believe they will act upon in various ways and that will affect you and I. So that being the case, we need to understand what their vantage point is and Miss Besant was the head of the Theosophical Society for some time and she was a highly adept initiate within this order she knew a lot of things. She had a lot of exposure to various occult teachings and such. So that being the case, she had a good grasp of what she was talking about here in many regards. And perhaps some of what she said has an air of truth to it. I think that that's, seems to be a logical stance to take. But like I said, there is always that little bit of poison in with it too. And we might see some of that crop up here as we continue through the work here but uh, right now the things she's saying make sense she's saying that the physiological explanation of psychology doesn't stand on its own two feet and that they have a better hypothesis and this is theosophy the definition of theosophy and what's believed in the theosophical society what they believe this theosophy offers the spiritual science if you will, the metaphysical version of psychology, the new psychology, as she calls it. <coughs> Excuse me. So it's, it's being presented in a way where it's a multifaceted approach. To approach this and understand it from the theosophical viewpoint, you would have a better overall view of how things really work than just going strictly with the physiological viewpoint that was presented by many in the psychological community early on here in the mid-1800s as they were pursuing these things. Uh, so let's continue reading. Another point I must mention is that Mr. Myers left out of the very strongest part of his case, that which comes from the study of the religions of the world and the testimony of mystics of every faith. Why? He did it deliberately, I presume, because he did not wish to bring into the clash the ordinary science and the religions of the time, because he feared lest science would listen less attentively if he went into the dangerous regions of the mystic and the visionary. But in shrinking from these facts, he left the study of human consciousness incomplete. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Yes, disregarding any kind of mystic experience or spiritual experience from the equation here is an incomplete study of human consciousness. And that's what psychology today is. It is an incomplete study of human consciousness. It doesn't factor in the idea of the human psyche that was understood in older times. <coughs> now this would be the spiritual aspect or spiritual component of things as opposed to strictly the physiological component. So she's correct in pointing this out, right? But also, 
what are the theosophical viewpoints of these things, of the spiritual side of things? Are they accurate? And that's where you have to ask some questions, and that's where maybe a little bit of the poison that's in the well comes out. But we'll see. Let's read on and see what else she has to say. The testimony of the mystic to his own experiences, the testimony of the religious man to the facts of his own consciousness, the visions of the Sufi, of the yogi, of the Christian saint, are as much facts of consciousness as any that you can gather from the records of the hypnotizer, any you can find in the recorded phenomena of hysteria. And it seems to me that Myers, in leaving them out, shrank from the most effective evidences of the larger consciousness which he desired so earnestly to establish. For, as a matter of fact, it is in those facts of consciousness that the highest reaches of the human consciousness are to be seen, as James has quite truly recognized. And Myers, in his own psychology, despite his exclusion of these, has offered in the very evidence that he has collected the justification for the religious theory and has begun to build the foundation of a science on which the beliefs of religion will hereafter be erected. And I'm going to pause for a moment right there, folks. I don't believe this ever came to fruition, right? So here's a portion where Miss Besant was wrong. And I'm not quite sure who she's talking about when she's talking about this Myers or this James fellow. Because many of their names probably disappeared out of the history books in the study of modern psychology. Probably because they asked some of the right questions. And didn't come to a logical conclusion that supported their hypothesis or theory of mind, as it were. And thus this allowed later for the arrival of others, of these psychological professors and pundits, to come along and present their own theories of mind. And some of them were largely based upon physiological aspects, as we'll see. But anyway, so she's not incorrect in pointing that out. So I'm not sure who these two fellows are she's referencing here. Like I said, they probably disappeared from the history books. I'm sure with enough research, we could probably turn up their works somewhere and see what exactly they were saying. But for now, we'll listen to what Miss Besant has to say. Turn from his book to the evidence for the larger self. I will take first in order what we call premonitions and intuitions because they are so widely spread. They range from the heavy sense of gloom, which hints at an impending and unknown disaster, or at some sorrow that is coming to us across the world, whose news has not come to us by the slower methods of ordinary science. They range from those vague impressions to the clear sight of what are now called phantasms of the living and of the dead. Now, those premonitions and intuitions... Those suggestions to us of a wider consciousness than the brain normally responds to, whence do they come? How do they reach us? How do they impress us? What part of our organism is it which is the organ for their sensing? These questions naturally arise, and we shall be able, I think, to give some answer to them when we study the mechanism of consciousness. It is only with the fact of their occurring that I am concerned at the moment, and how many among you can bear your own personal testimony to the fact of their happening? 
How many of you can find amongst your friends and acquaintances some who have received such premonitions, dimly or clearly, an ever-increasing amount of testimony to them comes forward, as they are regarded with less and less ridicule by educated and cultured people. We have, then, in the very first rank of our witnesses, these presentments, these intuitions of the distant. Then we come to the mass of evidence roughly included under the name of trance. That is to say, artificially induced and generally very deep sleep, going to pause for a moment there folks the idea of the trance this is always something that is inherent in many of the occult teachings and the magical workings we've seen this and this is also something that became popular with the rise of hypnotism as a thing and mesmerism as it were mesmer being one of the students of this science of hypnosis and animal magnetism and the various things he presented which were a combination of the old mystery school teachings and a new type of modern science with the scientific method so that being said she's pointing out the idea of the trance state here so here let's see what else she has to say these are so familiar to most of you that I need only remind you of their transcendent importance as establishing a wider consciousness than that which speaks through the senses, the intelligence, and the emotions. Exaltation of the senses is one of the most marked characteristics of the hypnotic trance, and that leads me to a particular case which I mentioned because having happened only lately, it is probably f less familiar than those recorded in books on hypnotic research. For a long time, people have talked of clairvoyance, and everyone knows it is a dangerous word to use in the hearing of the scientific man. It at once suggests all kinds of fraud. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. Yes, it does suggest that. Is there really some type of an extrasensory perception called clairvoyance? I think there might be some truth to that. Do they really know how to achieve this within these secret society groups? Well, that remains open for debate. They claim to. Maybe there are some who do achieve this state of this ability to be able to see things clairvoyantly or understand things clairvoyantly. But does that mean it's true? Are they telling us the truth? Or is this just a claim to bolster their own ego and pursue their own agendas and lead people, other people, down a trail for their own personal benefit? You have to ask these questions. I mean, it's it's sad to say, but there are some less than savory characters who turn up in these occult fraternities. So that being the case, you do have to take this stuff with a grain of salt, as I always caution you. But there may be an air of truth to it, and I think it's more the exception than the rule when it goes to these secret society groups that somebody may achieve that type of an ability or may have that type of an ability so let's read on only if you can bring in the word with a suggestion of x-rays you may go a little further but now there has come a new title from the lips of a scientific man who has the right to baptize it he has found some of his nervous patients endowed with auto introspection in the physical sense a literal looking into one's own body 
and some of these people have been able to look very definitely into their own bodies and in one remarkable case of a disorder which is very popular at the present time the patient not only described the disease but stated exactly how it was caused and described a little bit of bone which got into the passage where no bone should be Afterwards, the bone was removed with the most respectable scientific forceps, and no one could doubt the materiality of the proof. But it would not do to say it was clairvoyance, so it is now called internal autoscopy. It does not matter at all that in the first 30 years of the 19th century, these facts were observed over and over again, and this, that same some doctors were even driven out of medical profession, for asserting these facts, they were branded as deceived or deceivers, but now the phenomena may be safely observed under the shield of autoscopy. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this, I think, is a phenomenon that has disappeared largely in the modern culture. People observing, being able to see internally or perceive something internally in their bodies as being the source or cause of dis-ease and this kind of thing. But apparently this was an observed and recorded phenomenon in the early 1830s. Or in the earlier part of the 1800s. So, that being the case, we can see that uh, much of this recorded phenomenon has been lost to the modern literature. You don't hear anybody talk about that, do you? That maybe there was something to this idea. Now, you know your body better than anybody else. So you largely know when something's wrong. And a doctor may not have the foresight to be able to explain that. And this is just one case where she's evidencing something like that. And I find it kind of interesting that uh, she talks about this condition this person had as being popular at the time. Is that a thing, to have a popular medical condition? I mean, think about that. I, I think we see some remnant of that today. But then she's speaking about this is not exactly what you would call clairvoyance then. This is what's called autoscopy, or internal autoscopy, as she terms it here. So they're giving it a different name. This being able to identify or see where the dis-ease is in your body, what's causing the illness. Is there something to this? Because you do hear about healers and stuff today that claim they can see or sense these things in people and have been known to maybe offer treatments that help people. Are some of these stories true? Perhaps. Perhaps not. But let's continue on here. Now, the foregoing is a case of exaltation of the senses. I use the word exaltation deliberately. It means that the senses are stimulated to a greater keenness of perception. Exaltation of the intelligence, exaltation of the emotions. These are other steps along the same line, bearing testimony to a larger consciousness. Exaltation of the intelligence is one of the commonest things that happens in the hypnotic trance. And speaking the other day to a famous Parisian hypnotizer, the Colonel de Rojas, he told me that he had succeeded in pressing the memory of some of his subjects back into infancy in the most literal sense of the term, that the memory had been pressed back to the birth of the child. 
He was in search of certain facts, in search of memory of previous lives, and he is working back and back along the present, across the birth gateway, across the intermediate life, across the death gateway, on the other side, back to a previous state of existence in this world. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, again, now she's claiming that this hypnotist was able to suss out memories in people back to their infancy, to their very birth. Now, is this a true thing? I don't know. I don't think that's possible. But uh, you never know. But there are these people that claim to have lived before, had previous incarnations here. People that believe in reincarnation and believe they have had past lives and have been able to be regressed to these past lives in hypnotism sessions and things. Is there something to it? Maybe there is, but maybe there's also not. Maybe it's the implantation of false memories. This is a noted phenomenon that can happen. It's a known commodity that a hypnotist can implant false memories into somebody. This is something that was largely known as a mind control technique for people for the longest time. And you could look back at the works of people like Ewan Cameron and various others. Jose Delgado, he used the uh, electronic means of influencing people's behaviors. And various others, when you go back and look... They were doing all sorts of experimentation with hypnosis in combination with other things, drugs and electronic types of electric stimulation and things like that. And there's also others who used trauma-based methods to implant false memories in people. This is a known thing, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. Look at some of these people if you're looking for the history of mind control techniques and such like that. That brings you a little bit closer into the modern era of what we have that can show that a lot of this work's been done in the, the modern scientific community. But going back further than that, you had these hypnotists and stuff that would make these claims that they could do this. They could draw out this information from people, make them regress back to their very birth, and perhaps even before that to previous lives. And here's the thing. Is this above board? You have to wonder. You really have to wonder. Because sometimes, if you pay attention, if you've ever listened to a hypnotic session, sometimes the hypnotist makes suggestions, and this sends the person spiraling in a direction that may be guided by the hypnotist, and then perhaps this is not a true memory, but perhaps a fabricated memory being generated then and there. And it's hard to say for sure what goes on with this. How far back does mind progress? That's the other thing. How far back can you remember? Now, your average person doesn't really remember an awful lot of their childhood. It's said that you don't remember largely anything before the age of three. And even between the ages of three and seven, there's usually only fragmented memories there. And after the age of seven, you start to remember more things, but that's also fragmented. So think back. As far as you can, what's your earliest memory? And that is something that I don't know if this could be sussed out by hypnotism or not correctly. 
Maybe it can be. Maybe we do ha have these memories recorded somewhere in the backs of our minds, segmented away from the rest of our conscious thought, that do direct our actions on an unconscious level. Perhaps they can be accessed by a hypnotist or some such thing. I don't know. I don't have the answers to that. But it makes me a little suspicious about these things. But this guy is claiming something that I don't think can be scientifically proved or validated here with his hypnotism. And this is who Besant is referencing. But let's continue on and see what else she has to say here. He has found a greater increase of the power of memory than had been before observed. But that is already so definitely established that it, has hardly, it is hardly necessary to dwell upon it now, save as marking that it has been pushed further back than before. Memory loses nothing which has reached us through the senses or the brain. Exaltation of the intelligence carried to a further point would be genius. Press the exaltation further. Make it self-stimulated instead of stimulated from without. Make it a simple heightening of the consciousness without loss of consciousness instead of a heightening of consciousness with loss of consciousness in trance. And you have the beginning of genius, one of the most striking testimonies to the existence of a larger consciousness. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So essentially, she's alluding here to what Carl Jung referred to as the collective unconscious. This larger consciousness that exists outside and around the person that you could maybe access if you have the means. And it seems that this could be accessed through perhaps sleep-like states, altered states of consciousness, deep trances, this kind of thing. Now, I think there may be some kind of validation to this type of a claim here. There might be something that equates to this because we do see... And we have evidences that various techniques can work for achieving stuff like remote viewing. We have the Stargate project that went on. It's a CIA project. It's been declassified. It's the, the project which the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats was based upon. And this was a real documented thing. And the Monroe Institute has a technique they call hemisync which helps people to achieve this trance-like state and to be able to remote view various things. So this has been scientifically validated by this CIA experiment, by this project. So this isn't outside of the realm of science. It's a proven thing that this, this can happen. And that being the case, some of it you do have to wonder about. Are there other ways of achieving this? Is this really an actual thing? Is there such a thing as this collective unconscious, as Carl Jung calls it? This would be what we would relate to in many of these older occult teachings as the Akashic Record, you see. And being able to access a portion of this is acknowledged as genius of sorts. If you could, acknowledge, if you could access this on a conscious level, rather than in this trance-like state or this altered state of consciousness. This is what's called genius. And this is what the claim is here. And I think there might be some importance to this idea. So perhaps you can achieve different types of knowledges or experiences 
through some of these techniques or through some of these observations and through experimentation and documentation in a scientific way, it's been validated to some degree. But do they really have the answers of how all this works within theosophy? That I highly doubt. But we do know there's a phenomenon there. There are phenomena that are not explained readily by modern science, but they have been proven out through experimentation time and time again. And this is what scientific method is all about. And we have documentation of this. Like I said, that CIA project in and of itself, you won't find a much more, how should we say, credible source than that project. Because this is something they looked at for military intelligence. This was very important to them. And they've since allegedly canceled the project and brushed it under the rug. But I think that perhaps today something similar still goes on within the intelligence community. They know a little something. They've had access to these occult fraternities and secret sciences for a long time. The intelligence community and the secret societies run hand in hand. Because where do you think the intelligence community got their techniques from? From the secret societies. How do you think they keep secrets? How do you think they infiltrate organizations? They've got all this knowledge going back to these ancient mystery schools. They've adopted these same techniques, and they're interwoven with the, the secret society groups. So that being said, we shouldn't be surprised that they've taken on experiments like this to either prove or disprove the reality of things like remote viewing and extrasensory perception. In fact, largely, a lot of this stuff has been validated time and again by multiple scientific experiments. It exists. It certainly does. It's been well documented. It's just they don't know how to explain it. <laughs> and that's wherein there's a loss in information. There's always this air of mystery, right, about these kind of things. It, it can't be explained in the physiological paradigm here, in the material paradigm. It can't be explained away in those terms. And that's where there comes the crossroads here. And the theosophists claim that they have the occult spiritual knowledge to explain these things. And perhaps they do explain some of these things in a more accurate way. But I don't think they have all the answers. I don't think they have the, the be-all, end-all of the knowledge of this stuff as to how it exactly it manifests and how exactly it operates. But they often claim to have all the answers at the topmost levels of these various groups. But that's largely a manipulation, folks. Nobody has all the answers. We don't know what we don't know. And it's no different for people that belong to these secret society groups. They're not all-knowing. They don't have access to these, all these different extrasensory powers at all times like they claim. Is there such a thing as clairvoyance? I think it can be a proven commodity that there's something akin to clairvoyance that exists within people. But does it exist in the way in which it's described in many of these secret school teachings? I don't know. Can't say for sure. But I have my suspicions about the way they frame things in their references. And we'll see here. Let's continue reading and see what else Miss Besant has to say about these various topics.
topics. Then you have the exaltation of the emotions, which finds its place sometimes in sudden acts of heroic courage, of marvelous self-sacrifice. Stimulated, the man knows not whence, only he acts with the courage of the hero, although in his normal state of, of an ordinary man. You can find these things scattered all over the world today. You can find in your own self, if you watch your consciousness, that the, there are times when you think far better than you can think normally, when your intelligence is quicker, more alert, more piercing than in the normal state. And although you may not touch the heights of genius, in that mere heightening of your normal consciousness, there is testimony of something larger in yourself than that which is normally at work through the brain. And so, with the exaltation of the emotions of which I spoke. In its lower stages, it is common enough. In its higher stages, it reaches the ecstasy of the mystic and the saint. So that just as the highest exaltation of the intelligence is found in the man of genius, so is the highest exaltation of the emotions found in the mystic of every faith, when he passes into what is called ecstasy, beyond the stage in which he normally resides, and has their experiences more real to him than the experiences that come to him through the gateways of the senses, exercising over him a more compelling power, molding and shaping his life without appeal. Now of the same nature as those, though at a very much lower level of evolution, you find that strange and much ridicule ridiculed fact of consciousness that is called among some religious people conversion, a most interesting and significant change of consciousness. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Notice she immediately goes to the idea of the lower level of evolution. That's what these people are all about. They see themselves as being more highly evolved spiritually than the rest of us. They call you the profane. They think of you as the profane. They think of you as a lesser being, that they are more spiritually evolved than you. So some of these things that they speak of you cannot possibly understand. Uh, that's, that's how they view it. And that they work, you know, for the greater good for you. They do what's best for you because you're just a stupid animal and you don't know what's best for you, but they do. And that's the attitude many of them have largely taken on with this. So they view this whole idea of evolution, and boy, this predates predates Darwin by many millennia, folks, the idea of evolution. And that's the whole thing where we're misled today in this current age we live in. People are thought to, are taught, I should say, to think that this is a relatively new scientific idea that's been proven out, that it's scientific fact, when in fact it's not. It's not a scientific fact. It's still a theory. The theory of evolution. It doesn't hold water. There has never been any found these transitional species that should exist in droves. We should find mounds and mounds and mounds of transitional species, and we do not. Things look largely unchanged for as far back as human history can go. So they came up with a timetable to describe this, and perhaps I'll take this apart in some other show, The Age of the Earth. I, I think that's an interesting topic to look at, because when you realize that the way that they, they date fossils 
and remains that they find is based solely upon the work of a Scottish lawyer named Lyle in the 1800s. He came up with the idea of the geologic column. And this is what they use to date fossils. And this is how they determined that dinosaurs were millions and millions of years old and that these fossils they find are millions and millions of years old based upon the say of a Scottish lawyer. So I'll, I'll just drop that right there. That's, that's a topic for another day, and perhaps we'll take that apart at some point. But at any rate, we see here that... The idea of evolution is always brought into this because it's a spiritual concept that these people in the secret society groups are obsessed with. They think that they are more spiritually evolved than the rest of the commoners out there. They think they're special in this way. They think that they are, therefore, superior in many ways. And a lot of them within these secret society groups belong to family bloodlines that go back many, 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 many generations, and they tie their lineage back to, well, we've discussed that before, to what they consider to be a semi-divine bloodline and think they have the divine right to rule and that they are more spiritually evolved and that they are so sophisticated and smart and so evolved spiritually that they are just about at the precipice where they will achieve what they refer to in the modern era in the transhumanist movement as self-guided evolution where they will achieve apotheosis they'll achieve godhood here they will become god this is the luciferic philosophy the luciferian philosophy man can be god and man will become god that's what they claim through his intellect because when he gets to that certain point of intellect where he's perfected himself to such a degree, then he can be as a god or as gods. You know, the whole promise, the false promise, the great lie in the Garden of Eden that the serpent told Eve, you will be as gods in the day that you eat of that fruit, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is largely what's expressed through a lot of these secret schools. And like I said, you can see a lot of it's good information, a lot of valuable stuff here, value to be found in a lot of this. But there's always that hint of poison, and I think that hint of poison is the evolution idea that there are some within the species of humanity that are more evolved than others. This is the root of racism, this is the root of elitism. It's the root of all of it. This whole evolutionary idea that ties back to these mystery schools. And this is just a class division. Class differentiation here. You have the ruling class and the ruled class. This is justification for them holding knowledge over others. They see themselves as having the divine right to rule. They think they're more evolved. So therefore, they, they should rule. And that they know better than you. And they will help you to achieve your next level of evolution. This has always been the case here with these secret society groups. 
Sad to say, it's become something like that. And I think a lot of it's been misconstrued from earlier teachings. But uh, at any rate, let's continue on here. Now, of the same nature as those, though at a very much lower level of evolution, you will find that strange and much ridiculed fact of consciousness that is called, among some religious people, conversion, a most interesting and significant change of consciousness. Granted, much exaggeration often goes with it. Granted, it is sometimes only a passing phase, and the man falls back from the exaltation of conversion into the ordinary mud of his previous evil life. Nevertheless, the subsequent fall does not alter the fact of the temporary elevation. And when, side by side with that, you remark in reading the records of conversions that it is only a minority who fall back into the mud and the majority whose whole lives are changed by that marvelous experience, then, unless you are hopelessly prejudiced, with that most bigoted prejudice of all, the prejudice of the narrow-minded scientific man, you will recognize there also testimony to a larger consciousness. And this conversion comes in a strange way sometimes. Well, in India, I had a letter from an English missionary. He was a man whom I had met in the days when I was a free thinker. He had been one of those I had met in the secular society in Manchester. A secular society in Manchester, sorry, I apologize there. He had taken part in the work of that society, whilst I myself was in the secular movement. And because of that, he wrote me, and he gave me a record of a strange experience through which he had passed. Traveling in America, he had occasion to pass through that state, wonderful for scenery and marvelous natural phenomena. Colorado. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this guy went to Colorado and had some kind of an experience. Let's read on and see what it was. Staying there for a short time, seeing the marvels of nature on every side, his sense of beauty stimulated to a very high degree, his sense of wonder at the power of nature so marvelously displayed around him stimulated him also. Suddenly, without a moment's warning, there came an opening of the whole of his consciousness, a sudden rush, as it were, or illumination, what he called a sudden revelation of God. And who shall dare to say that the life supreme, which breathes in every atom of the universe, which is but his thought, did not reveal himself to that spirit which is kin to himself, and through the marvels of external nature touch a mind and heart which were closed to the ordinary promptings of religion? This at least remained out of that marvelous experience that it turned him into a religious man. He could not deny the fact that he himself had experienced. He could not deny the breaking down of all the barriers of the ordinary consciousness, of the inflow of a life higher and more compelling. And although it be true that, as was natural from the line of his previous thought and education, the illumination by the eternal spirit of the spirit encased in flesh led him on into a somewhat narrow path of a crude form of Christian belief, what matters that, provided the Eternal spoke to the Eternal, and the God without in nature manifested himself to the God within in man. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, the claim here, the God without in nature manifested himself to the God within in man. So 
again, these theosophists, these mystery schools, they reference as God what they call the quote-unquote the higher self. And I think this is a, a misrepresentation of God, the creator, in many ways. And it, it's actually the inverse of that. This is the inflation of ego rather than the elimination of ego, as they claim is their, their whole purpose. To get back to at-one-ment or atonement with God, they need to they need to eliminate the ego. This is what they claim. But this idea of higher self, this only elevates the idea of ego all the more when it's viewed in the wrong context here. And I think that's largely what's been done by many in these secret society groups. They believe themselves to be God. They believe the higher self is their God. So they themselves are God. And this, I think, is a misinterpretation of what is meant by the teaching that God manifests in all things here and that we are made in God's image. And I think this is a gross misrepresentation of what it means to be made in God's image. So they claim the higher self, this is God. But when you're talking about self, this is a loaded word. And so when they're saying that their higher self is the God, God the creator, it's, it's a misnomer. So this higher state of mind, this is not God, folks. Higher-minded thinking is not God. Don't equate it with God. Now, it may be godly, or more godly, more towards the moral attributes of God, but it is not God himself. And this is where the misconstruing goes in. This is the worship of the creation instead of the creator. This is the misrepresentation that I think has been largely adopted through these secret society groups. They see nature as being God. Nature and God are one and the same. That's not the case. The creation is not the creator. The creator is not the creation. Although the creator can interact through his creation at will whenever he wants, or how he wants, and has created beings, human beings, in his image to be able to have a similar type capacity within the creation to be able to have creative thought and imagination within the creation. It's a lesser form of creation ability. We cannot simply create something out of nothing like the creator can. We can only work with what's here. It's a lesser form of creation, you see. So I think people have grossly misconstrued this when they go to the idea of the higher self as being the actual presence of God. That's not the case. But enough of my little side trail with that. I hope that that made sense to you. But uh, let's go ahead and continue reading here. 
So that I suggest to you, as a line of very interesting study, these facts of conversion. And I rejoice to see the stress Professor James laid upon them in his work on the varieties of religious experience, for it gives them their right place in the new psychology as facts in human consciousness. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So she's referencing a book called Varieties of Religious Experience by this Professor James. And she says this gives them their right place in the new psychology as facts in human consciousness. So religious experiences, spiritual experiences, all of these things can be regarded as facts within the new psychology, she claims. Let's read on. And this is at least to be remembered that the records of the history of the world show the most marvelous results from the actions of those who trace them all to what they call conversion, justifying that saying of Lord Rosebery that the mystic, who is also a man of the world and of intelligence, is the most powerful person it is possible to find in human life. Absolutely true, for let the higher consciousness play upon a capable brain, a strong heart, a sound nervous system, and you have a union which nothing on earth is able to conquer, a force which nothing on earth is able to shake. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the idea here is that the mystic is the embodiment of this whole ideal in her claim here. That would be the theosophist, right? So they think that they have a capable brain, a strong heart, a sound nervous system. The union of all of this, combined with this access to the higher self, the higher consciousness, the ability to perceive these things or to be able to maybe access some portion of this greater storehouse of knowledge, this is inherent in the mystic, and you'll find no greater being than a mystic on earth here. That's her claim, and you see how much of this is very egoic, right? It's very self-serving. It's really puffing oneself up within these secret society groups. So you see, we're, we're really good. We're the smart ones. We're the superior ones. That's the attitude that they have. Because they think they're so sophisticated, because they're so highly evolved, right? And this is the kind of thing that they use as a type of evidence thereof. So what does this have to do with the new psychology? Let's read on and see. And then you may follow along these ever-converging lines of study into this strange land of dreams, worthy of most careful investigation, for dreams deserve to be analyzed, to be sorted out, to be ascribed to the various parts of the human consciousness from which they take their rise, so that place may be found alike for the mere jumble of rubbish due to some physical brain disturbance, and for the dream which opens up a new world of consciousness or which supplies gaps in the knowledge of the waking consciousness, which enables the intelligence to pursue its studies with a surer foot and with a keener insight, so that from all these different lines there comes the testimony of a larger consciousness in man. Now what is that consciousness? Deliberately, I have simply called it here a larger consciousness, because I would not as it were, commit any one of us, hearers or speaker, to a theory to start with. These varying lines along 
which facts may be studied force uh, sorry these varying lines along which facts may be studied force us into the admission that there is more of us than works through the human brain what is the more there are two chief views put forward I'm gonna pause for a moment here folks okay so now this gets to the crux of the matter what is she claiming here she's claiming that the human brain cannot account by itself for human consciousness that i think she's absolutely correct about so now let's see how the theosophists describe this what she calls larger consciousness and this would be what carl jung referred to as the collective unconscious what the occultists would call the akashic record what the modern scientists would call genetic memory or epigenetic memory you see this is why things like archetypes affect the human being it's a type of knowledge that exists externally to us but we inherently understand it because we have some type of access to this external collective unconscious as carl jung described it this is an old idea very old idea it was given the scientific moniker by Carl Jung, the collective unconscious. And we could understand that in many ways. So this is why things like archetypes have power, why symbols have power, because there's a portion of human consciousness that remembers or identifies with the symbol, recognizes what the symbol infers on an unconscious level, and it can affect you subconsciously to result in a conscious behavior change at some point so that being said let's see what Besant has to say here because I find this line of thinking fascinating because I do think that there's more to human consciousness than just the physiological structure that is the brain and the nervous system and the electrochemical impulses that that operates with so let's see what she says one i suppose would be called if we must label it the scientific the other the religious i do not want to put these two words against each other as though they were still in conflict for although in the western world the history of religion in the past has been a conflict between religion and science the most modern science of today is again becoming the handmaid and helper of religion, and that cooperation between the two will, I believe, persist until all human consciousness is illuminated by the light that comes from observation and the light that comes from the spirit. The first view is the one which regards the unfolding consciousness of man as gradually evolving throughout the growth of not only of humanity, but of the kingdoms that lie below humanity in evolution. According to some, the increase of perfection of the organism, leading to an increase in the manifestation of the consciousness, to growth of the consciousness, according to a growing scientific school, the exercise of the consciousness leading to an improvement in the mechanism whereby consciousness is expressed. So I'm going to pause there and I'll try to take apart that word salad that she just wrote there. So essentially she's saying here that consciousness is growing. It's growing to the next level, but not just for the human beings, for the lesser creatures too. And we've heard some version of this before, haven't we? So the ideal here is to help along 
those intelligences, those consciousnesses that are lesser than yourself so that they can advance to the next level. And so when you take into consideration the way that these people within the secret society groups view you, when they think themselves to be semi-divine, they have different lineage than you, and that they consider themselves more highly spiritually evolved than you already, well, they're trying to help you get a leg up so that maybe you could get to the level that they are now and that they will advance even further. They will ascend to this realm of self-guided evolution because they're just about at that precipice in their viewpoint. And in self-guided evolution, well, then maybe, just maybe, they can take you with them to a higher level of evolutionary process here, as it were. At least this is their viewpoint with this stuff. So, anyway, let's see what else she has to say here. And this would maybe apply to the other creatures of this world as well, in the estimation of some of the secret schools. So she says here, the exercise of the consciousness leading to an improvement in the mechanism whereby consciousness is expressed. So she says, when you come to ask on this view, what is the larger consciousness, you will find yourself somewhat puzzled how to explain it. What we may call, for the moment, the subconscious that is intelligible enough, according to their, this first view, as we shall see hereafter. For we can readily understand that along the line along the long line of evolution, there will be countless cases in which consciousness worked to a definite purpose, then found that that purpose could be accomplished without giving to its whole attention, then followed a gradual withdrawal of attention as the habit of the action became more and more woven into the organism, until at last the consciousness was able to leave to the automatism of the organism all that class of acts which at one time it was compelled to superintend and direct. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So she's saying the existence of the subconscious or unconscious mind in the human being is evidence of something like this, whereas in times past, according to their teachings, you would have to consciously think about your heart beating to keep it beating. You would have to consciously think about breathing now, is there some truth to this? I, I don't know for sure. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case, where organisms would have to consciously think about every breath, every heartbeat. But this is what they claim in this type of evolutionary theory that they present in the secret schools, that at one point man had to devote more energy to these types of processes, and therefore he didn't have the greater consciousness, the intelligence he has now, the self-awareness, this kind of thing. And this is at the core of what they teach about evolution in the spiritual sense here. So let's go ahead and we'll read on, now that I broke apart a lot of that word salad. It is easy to see that behind us on that evolution there must be remnants of promptings of every kind, remnants of the promptings of the animal, of the savage, of the partly civilized man, all worked more or less into the very material of the bodies in which we live by physical heredity. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Are you catching on to the eugenics bent of this yet now that we've said that? 
physical heredity. Hmm. So that you may have there a vast mass of promptings coming from the evolution that lies behind us, which has fallen below the horizon of consciousness into the subconscious self. But it is difficult along this line to explain genius, for although it may be argued that you would find in the highly complicated organism with which genius is connected greater variability than in a simpler organism, although you might argue that there will be occasional variations forward-reaching as we find them all through nature, although you may admit those so-called accidental variations, remembering, however, that accidental means ignorance on our part and not absence of law, yet genius is too far ahead of the normal evolution to be explained in that way. It is not a case of a slight forward evolution which may be picked up and emphasized. It is the leaping over an enormous gulf between the talent of a clever man and the genius of the inspired. It is as though nature, leaping over all connecting links, suddenly out of a stone produced a plant, suddenly out of a plant an animal, suddenly out of an animal a man. Nature does not make these leaps, and why should she make them in genius more than anywhere else? So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So nature does not make these leaps, according to Besant here. A rock does not become a plant, and a plant does not become an animal, and an animal does not become a man. What did Darwin teach you? Well, we all came from these common ancestors. What does the modern theory of evolution teach you? That we all came from these common ancestors that we evolved through millions and millions and millions of years. The primordial soup evolved into everything, right? That's not what the secret societies teach. That's not what they recognize. They know that nature does not do that. She says here, nature does not make these leaps, and why should she make them ingenious more than anywhere else? So she's also attributing the idea of genius, or people that are way ahead of their time, as being, well, not a natural phenomenon. Let's put it that way. So this would indicate this larger consciousness, as she calls it. Let's read on. Accidental variation is not sufficient to explain the transcendency of genius, and there is another difficulty with regard to it, the difficulty that genius tends to unfit its possessor for the ordinary life of the world, that in the struggle for survival of the fittest, for those who believe in that as the line of evolution, genius is a distinct disadvantage, tends even to kill out its possessor, to render him quite unable to survive and have offspring, and this outside the fact that genius is mostly sterile, outside the fact that an intelligence or that as the intelligence of the nervous system increases, the fecundity of productiveness lessens. Outside all these facts, and the possibility of the transmission of mental and moral qualities at all, let us face this fatal fact, that genius makes its possessor unfit for the struggle of the normal world. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So this is the philosophy of survival of the fittest. And she's saying that genius, or this evolutionary leap, does not make you the fittest to survive. 
in this world, and therefore this can't be explained by the evolutionary process as presented by Darwin. Keep that in mind as we continue on here. Let's continue. It is marked in melancholy letters over the page of history. It comes out to us in all the irregularities of genius, the result of a larger consciousness battling with a world it does not understand, the result of forces it is unable to control, when those forces are thrown down into the physical plane. It comes out as increased vitality along many channels, and not necessarily along lines which can be controlled by the will and intelligence. Those are points that need careful investigation before you accept the view that consciousness is evolving only from below. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, consciousness is not only evolving from below, but it's being guided from above. This is what they claim. So these are what you would call the ascended masters reaching down to help guide the evolutionary process or also some that are referred to as the hierarchies, these spiritual hierarchies, reach down to help guide man's evolution to the next step. This is what they teach in the secret schools. So we need help from above, but we don't need the help of a savior. This is what they teach in the secret schools. <laughs> you see the, the contradiction in the way they think about things, in the way they frame theology as compared to theosophy but let's continue on here the other view is of a very different nature telling us of a supernal entity a living spirit a portion of myself it is called in a great scripture a divine fragment a part of the universal life gathering around itself veils of matter that it may come into touch with the many planes or worlds of our system a spiritual germ, we may call it, planted in the soil of matter. I care not whether you call all matter physical and divide it off by differences of density, or whether you take the ancient and more accurate view that matter rises in an ascending scale marked off by the difference of subtlety of the atoms that compose that matter through all the subtler and even subtler worlds of being. That divine fragment veiled in matter comes, by the medium of that matter, into contact with the phenomena of every plane. The spirit, gradually unfolding and awakening to its inherent unalienable divine powers. It comes thus into touch with every region of the universe. It recognizes the difference between itself and others for the first time on the lowest plane, the physical. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. So you recognize yourself for the first time when you reach the physical plane. A lot of this falls back on their teachings where the manifestation of consciousness arises through various planes, various forms of development, through various planes of existence. And it's only at this lowest plane, the physical plane, at which it realizes the concept of self. The ontological self. The I am within man. So it's only here in the physical that you first realize that. So they have this system. If you look at, I, I would recommend if you're going to look at a cosmological system, that is a good illustration of how they view this. Look at the Rosicrucian system, because that's largely where the theosophists take their beliefs from too. 
in the, the Western strain of things. They look at the Rosicrucian teaching for the cosmology here. So there's these ascending and descending portions of manifestation that we go through, according to them here, these various cycles of evolution that we go through, where the physical is the lowest part, and it circles up through the various higher realms, the higher spiritual realms, and then circles back down again into the physical. There's seven different worlds, they claim, through which we, we will evolve and come back here. And when we transcend this evolutionary process, we move on to a higher level, and then those beings just below us step up and take our place here, through the process in which we are in and, and take the place here now. So they also claim that the angels were once human beings and they've ascended and this kind of thing in the various teachings of some of the different schools here of thought with this stuff. So that when we transcend, we will become equivalent to the angels. We'll have their station that they are at now. We'll reach their level of evolution. And then those beings that fall just below us will become the human beings of the next phase of evolution here in the on the earth and they call these various periods so it's a convoluted subject to look at because many of the secret society groups teach it slightly differently but uh, it's all the same teachings so they claim this evolutionary process is going to happen it's through the cycles of time that this happens and we are at a point here where we're changing ages and now is the time for the ascendancy of man or at least some portion of man and they view themselves as being that portion these elites these dark occultists who run things that they will ascend to this next level of evolution and they have no place for the profane in their new world order folks keep that in mind and they view you as the profane you will be the ones left behind here well they elevate themselves and then you may take their place and so on and so on and this is how they view things they will be the gods of this place they'll ascend to the level of godhood they've always sought this is what they believe, many of these people. But let's go ahead and read on here. There are transmitted through its higher vehicles to its own self the consciousness vibrations from higher planes than these. And slowly the physical vibrations organize in the physical body organs which are able to respond to them, and each new organ opens out a new avenue of knowledge. As the vibrations of the physical plane play upon the outermost casing, the consciousness answers from within with thrills of responding life, shaping the matter of its own vehicle into ever-improving organs for the reception from outside of those vibrations. As the evolution proceeds, subtler and subtler vibrations are able to affect an ever-awakening and more and more responding spirit. And this responsiveness does not stop with the limit of the physical body. The subtler bodies belonging to the planes beyond begin to vibrate in answer to their vibrations, and those are transmitted gradually to the physical vehicle as it becomes more and more receptive, delicate, and highly organized as these vibrations 
are more and more definitely recognized by consciousness in the higher regions, it transmits them more definitely to its physical vehicle, and all that you call premonitions, intuitions, exaltations of the senses, of the intelligence, of emotion, the visions of the mystic and saint, the clear vision of the yogi and of the trained occultist, all that you get in the variety of dreams, all that you get in genius, and in the loftier states of human consciousness, are all the coming down into the physical brain of vibrations received in loftier regions by loftier bodies, gradually being organized for conscious life and work upon those planes. While we are still half-evolved, the recognition of these is confused, but they are never to be confounded with the promptings that come from the evolution of the past. They are the promise of the future, not the relics of the past. They are the struggles of the eternal spirit within us to make his vehicles answer to his changes in consciousness. Genius is but the momentary grasping of the brain by the larger consciousness, forcing it into an insight, a strength of grip, and a width of outlook that causes its noble reach. It is the putting down more of the larger consciousness into an organism capable of vibrating in answer to its thrills, so that we may now drop the word larger consciousness and take a truer title, this larger consciousness is our real self. This larger consciousness is the real man, who is not the bodily garments that he wears, and all things that we see around us, that we recognize as hints of a larger consciousness, these are the whisperings, scarce articulate as yet, but with all the promise of the future, that come from the land of our birth, from the world, to which in truth we belong. They are the voice of the higher self, who is truly the larger they are the voice of the living spirit, unborn, undying, ancient, perpetual, and constant. They are the voice of the inner God speaking in the body of man. There it is, folks, the higher self. This is the new psychology. This is at the core of things wrong in this world. No veneration of God the Creator, God the Father Himself. The veneration of the self, the higher self, as the God, as the goal here. The graven image of the self. This is a form of idolatry, putting the self before God. Worshipping the creation as the creator, and they are not co-equals. And although we are created in the image of God, we are not God. Do not confuse that fact. And that is a fact. We are not God, and we can never be God, the creator. But these people, they teach that the higher self, this is God. So you know what? If you're serving your higher self, that makes you self-serving, doesn't it? That's the antithesis of a godly spirit, in my estimation. But anyway, folks, that's all I got for tonight. I hope this was informative and educational. I hope you derive some value from this tonight. I want to remind you, I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.